God, I pray for the power in this midst to be in the midst right now, Lord. God, I feel like I don't know why you allow me to stand up here, Lord, and declare your truth. I know you it's your work, it's your selection, it's your sovereign doing, God. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit helps just to remove me and just to, I don't want to get in the way of your word. Let your word reign clear, God, that you have given for our correction and truth to make us more better men and women of God and follow your will, your way. So God, just dwell in the mist. Illuminate the scriptures, illuminate our mind, God, that we don't just see words on a page, but we understand who's speaking these words, who inspire these words. Come alive to us in your scripture, Lord God. Help us to see the truth. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's on the mountain, he's preaching. Jesus starts off in 6 saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed of them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So he's giving some warning here. He says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Will reward you. So Jesus is now, he's switching topics, if you will. He's going to a, another discussion. In chapter 5, he ends it with showing us the difference between the kingdom of the Pharisees, or their righteousness, I'm sorry, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, compared to the righteousness of the kingdom of God. That's what he does all in chapter 5. He does this compare and contrast, showing you what the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought was righteous and versus what God said is truly righteous, what the kingdom of God looks like. And so uh, another way you can probably summarize chapter 5 is religion versus relationship. He did a discussion of religion versus relationship. When I say religion, I'm talking about just religious rituals people do or the teachings of men when it's elevated over the word of God. That is what Jesus was highlighting in his, uh, his discussion in chapter 5. He was showing you what religion looks like when you elevate men's teaching over the teaching of God versus the word of God and walking in that. And so that's what he shows us in chapter 5. And now in chapter 6, Jesus is beginning... A new discussion, a discussion on how we ought to be when we practice our righteousness in the public, in the open square. And he begins chapter 6 with saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. He's meaning, be mindful, take notice, be attentive, put at the front of your mind, be on guard because it will happen to you. Some of you are saying, what will happen to you? When you begin to live out the ways of Christ, when you begin to be a light and shine in this world, there will be the temptation to want to perform your acts in front of people to receive honor, glory, and praise for them. So Jesus is saying, you have to be aware. Be aware. 
these teachings that I'm giving you, this, this righteous living that I'm telling you, you have to be on guard because as you live this righteous life, there will be a temptation to want to seek the praise and the glory of others as you let your light shine. So he's telling them to be aware in how you practice your righteousness in the public, in the open. I think about me and my wife, for example. When we first became Christians, one of the things that we gave up was drinking. We gave up the drinking. And as time went by, it's, it's five years we have not drink. It's six years we have not drink. And we would encounter people that knew us from our old lives. And we would tell them, yeah, man, I don't even get down like that no more. It's been like five years since I had a drink or since I had this. And you often hear, what? Oh, you haven't had a drink in such and such, such a time? But what I, what I noticed that began to happen as I would encounter some of those people, I would actually begin to look forward to their reaction when I told them how long it's been since I had a drink. I would look forward to how they're going to love me and say these good things about me, these good words about me. And see, I was beginning to love the honor of man as I was trying to walk in righteousness. I was loving the applause of people. And I would tell them how I've been living this way. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, you have to be aware of this thing. You have to be aware of your walk. You have to be aware of your righteousness because people will applaud you and look at you as you live this pious and holy life. And there will be attention, there will be a, a, a temptation to want to gravitate to that honor of men and women. So he tells them to be aware. Because you must understand, my brothers and sisters, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he begins to clean up shop. You go from darkness to light. And guess what? Other people begin to notice. They notice the righteousness that you're living in. They notice that once before you were a big partier, and now they don't see you at the parties anymore. Or once before you were a big drinker, and they don't see you drinking anymore. Or once before you were a big smoker, or you were materialistic, or whatever sin that had you enslaved to it, you once you don't do it anymore, people begin to take notice. And they say, boy, you have really changed. People start saying all of these glowing things about you, and guess what? It begins to sound good. Especially if you've never heard it before. Especially if you never had people look up to you this way, or speak these glowing words, or give you the compliments. See, because compliments can be alluring. The compliments and the praise of people can be alluring. Yes, we say the, the, the Christian slogan is only by the grace of God are all glory be to God. But those compliments can have this power of its own when we begin to crave those and we begin to crave that attention that comes from living this pious lifestyle. So Jesus is telling his disciples, you must be aware in how you practice your righteousness. And this seems to be the major issue that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. That they were doing their, their holy living, they were doing their pious living in front of other people just to be noticed of them. There was no concern for God, there was no glorification of God in their mind, it was more just for show. So for example, I want you to look at Matthew 23. We know this is the woe when Jesus is straight scolding the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at one of the things he, he points out here. Matthew 23, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 to 7. 
So look what he says here. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the one that everybody thinks is holy and great. Look what he says. And he says, but they do all their deeds to be what? Noticed by men. They're practicing their righteousness so that people can take notice. God is not in the picture. It's other people's praise, he says here. So it says that they are doing this to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries and lent in the castles of their garments. So the phylacteries were these boxes where they would have scripture in there, so they would want to show you how holy they are that they're carrying scripture all on their body. And they would lift in their castle, so on the outside, they looked really holy. They looked like these really pious people. They looked like, this is the one I want to be like. But Jesus is saying they're just doing it because they want to be noticed by others. But what would be our equivalent today of the phylacteries and the, uh, the castles? What would the equivalents would be Sometimes as Christians, we love to carry that big cross on our chest. We love to wear our Christian chain, the our cross. Sometimes we get a big cross so people can see how holy and how committed to Jesus we are. Or some people love carrying around their Bible so people can say, well, they're really committed to Christ. See, those are some of the things that we will do to show people that we are really about Jesus, that we really love Jesus. And when we do that, we are not seeking the attention of God. We are seeking the attention of others. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with carrying a cross or, or wearing a cross on your necklace. There's nothing wrong with carrying a cross your Bible. But you must ask yourself, what is my intentions when I do this? When I wear my Christian t-shirt, when I have my Christian bumper sticker, when I have my Christian handbag that says God is good all the time, why am I doing that? Am I doing that for the attention of others so that I may be looked at upon other Christians as being a real Christian? Or am I doing this for God's glory? Why am I doing this? To show others how committed to Jesus I am? That I'm more Christian than you are? You must ask yourself, why do we do these things? And when we tell people our testimony, how long it's been since we've done such and such an act, why are we doing this? Are we doing this so that they can say, whoa, look at you, or whoa, look at him? Why are you practicing and telling people all your righteousness of how God has saved you? Who are you seeking glory from or for? Is it yourself? Or is it God. So Jesus, in our main text, back in Matthew 5, he's warning his disciples that with this righteous teaching that he is giving, this righteous living, you have to be aware of your flesh, because your flesh is going to want some attention. It's going to crave the compliments and the honor and the different and the uh, attention that comes from living a holy and pious life. And the opposite is true as well. The opposite is true that if you are living a holy and righteous life and nobody seems to take notice, there is the temptation to make your righteousness a little bit more public for the sake of notoriety. There's a temptation to let others know how you were serving over here, to let others know you just helped this homeless person over there. There's a temptation inside of us to let people know how holy and how righteous we are. So Jesus... Sand inside us, please be aware of this. Be aware of practicing your righteousness. And if you say that this is not me, then guess what, my brother and sister, you have already lost the battle. Because if Jesus is speaking to them, it's something that we will all face. That we will all face this, this temptation of wanting to receive a variety, of wanting to receive the honor from men and women as we live a holy and pious, ungodly 
life. But as we go on in this text, Jesus says something else that really just struck me, that struck me in a, in a strange way. And he says, you know, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed of them. And then he says, otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now this verse kind of bothers me a little bit. It, it bothers me because the Jesus in my mind doesn't, wouldn't say a such thing like this. And when I say the Jesus of our mind, we all have the Jesus of our mind. And when I say the Jesus of our mind, it's the way that we think that Jesus ought to handle a certain situation, right? When we look at a situation and we're like, Jesus, why did you do it that way? Wouldn't it be better this other way? That's the Jesus of our mind. So when I'm reading this text, then the Jesus of my mind is kind of blown away because it doesn't agree with the Jesus of Scripture. Because in this text, he brings up reward. Jesus brings up reward. Jesus tells the disciples that practicing their righteousness before men will basically cause them to forfeit their reward, which is with the Father in heaven. And so the Jesus of my mind is saying, Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you, it looks like you are incentivizing righteous living. It looks like you are rewarding us for what we should be already doing. That's, that doesn't line up with the Jesus of, of my mind. The Jesus of my mind likes what it says in Matthew 5, 48, where he says, therefore you ought to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It seems like Jesus should say that. He should just say, you should just do good because God is holy and perfect and you should be like him. Why is Jesus bringing in reward for righteous living? See, that bothers me. But it doesn't bother Jesus. It doesn't bother Jesus. He tells the disciples that there's actually reward for righteous living. But when you do things in his name, that you will be rewarded. And this goes beyond salvation. This goes beyond a new heavens and a new earth. But that there are treasures in heaven associated with living righteous here on earth. That you will be recompensed for your deeds down here in body. Now, I... I always say this point, that I am totally on board with John Piper, who often preaches the, the, the glory of Christ and that he is the treasure of heaven. Yes, Christ is the ultimate value. Christ is the treasure of heaven. But I also want to bring to you what we see in the other places of Scripture when it comes to our treasure. Look at Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 11, 12. Look what he says about treasure, or look at what he says about reward here. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Look what Jesus is saying about reward here. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Look at 12. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is what? And heaven is great, for the same way they cursed you, the prophets who were before you. So now Jesus is talking to the brother who is receiving persecution. He said, brother, just keep on striving, keep on going, because you have this reward. There's reward for you enduring the persecution. There's reward for you enduring the name-calling, the shame. There's reward for you in heaven for living a righteous and godly life. He reminds us that there is reward. Another place where he shows us that there is reward for righteous and godly living is in Matthew chapter 10. Go there with me, Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 42. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. You can read really from 40 on down, but I just want to just point out 42. Jesus says this. He says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, look, even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward, even a cup of cold water. God sees, and he says, there is reward in that. If you're given in the name of a disciple because they are following me, because they are connected with me, he says, there is reward even in water given. So that mean that God sees us when we are operating out of a pure heart for the glory of his name. See, that means that he sees you when you go to the convalescent homes. That, that means that he sees you when you go to the homeless shelters or when you go out in the streets and pass out tracks or when you are preparing your house for missional community or, or house church or Bible studies. All of those things God sees and he loves it. He, he sees it. It's a rejoicing for him. God is for it. He sees those things and he says there is reward. So I just want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, and when you're going and you're, you're striving about trying to be obedient to the Lord and you're wondering, does God even care? Does it even matter what I'm doing? Yes, God sees it all. He sees your struggle. He, he sees how you're striving for his name. He, he sees how you are operating in ministry, how the desires of your heart is to want to go out and share the gospel and to meet the needs of the poor. He sees that. He says there's reward for righteous living. So don't take even the little things, even the setting up the, 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 the chairs, God sees that, even putting up the tables, God sees that, even putting up the banner, God sees that, he sees everything that you do for his name's sake and his glory. Righteous, pious living. And he says there is reward in that. My father sees those things. You can also think about the parable of the talents where the servants are rewarded, each servant is individually rewarded for using their talents wisely. And it reward, there's reward. Or you can look at Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10 says this. It says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work towards his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints, Said that God sees what you're doing when you're serving. He, he sees it. He said, God is not unjust to forget. He said, that would be unjust. He said, God is not unjust to forget your works towards his name. So he sees it when you're ministering to the saints. He sees you when you're operating in this name. He sees the things that you're doing. So it's not for nothing, my brothers and sisters. It's not for nothing that you live this godly and righteous life. Your flesh may say, why am I doing it? There are times when you don't even want to do it. I know, as I always tell you, there, there are times when I'm saying, God, I don't want to preach. I don't want to go to the mission and preach, God. I want to sit on my couch and relax. But I know that thought is a lie from the enemy. See, we must know, because we know that it honors God. It gives him glory. And God sees all that we do. Another verse where we see uh, what the word reward is hinted to, if you will, is in Revelations 21 14. And it says here in Revelations 21 14, and this is describing the New Jerusalem, the New Heaven, or the New Jerusalem. It says that the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, 
and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You see whose name's been on them. It's not my name, but it's the, the twelve apostles, the ones who set the foundation, the foundation of the apostles. Their name, they're being rewarded. Their name has been written in the stones of the new heavens, new earth, the, the new Jerusalem. That's not me, that's not everybody, but we see how God is calling out. He said, on these twelve foundation stones, guess what? It's going to be the name of the apostles of the Lamb. So we see that there is reward. There's things that God promises to those who remain obedient to him. He, he rewards righteous living and pious living. And I know you're like me. You say, but I'm not doing it for rewards. I, I, I'm doing it because I, I love Christ. But I just want to say that Jesus brings it up first. So don't get mad at me. Jesus brings up reward. Jesus brings it up in the scriptures. He brings it up throughout the gospel. The apostle Paul brings it up several times. See, this is the goodness of God. That he even gives us reward for things we ought to be doing in the first place because he's holy and he's worthy. But yet God wants to show you that I'm so good that I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my son and I'm gonna just shower you with even more because you are loved of me. This shows us the goodness of God to us. God is good. God is good. And he shows us here. Now, most theologians, there's some discussion on whether the, the, the reward that Jesus speaks about is in our main text in Matthew 6, there's discussion if the reward is all future, or is some immediate, or is like a fourth of it all future heavenly treasures, and, and like 75% of it right now going to get rewarded. And the truth of the matter is, when I look at the text, I, I want it to be the right now. I, I don't want to wait for my treasures in, in heaven, to be honest, I'm being honest, in my moments. I want the treasures right now. I, I, I want to see it. Why? Because it's, it's hard for me sometimes to uh, spiritually appraise heavenly treasures. See, I, I, I can appraise a new car, right? We, we can appraise a nice bank account. I can, I can appraise a new house. I, I can see that with my eyes, and I can see its value, but sometimes it is hard for me to, to appraise my, my heavenly bank account. That Romans 6.20 says that we are storing up treasures in heaven. You can store up treasures in heaven by righteous living. It, it's hard for me to appraise the heavenly treasures. But I must tell you this. We naturally can't appraise the heavenly treasures. It is only by the Holy Spirit that you can even get an understanding of the glories of God to come. And that is why it's so important to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just to possess the Holy Spirit, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit to righteous living. Because it's through that that you get an understanding of the glories of God. Outside of that, you can end up being just like the rich young ruler. Did us remember the rich young ruler in Luke 18? Go be there. Let's see how he responded when he comes to heavenly treasures. Did he want his heavenly treasures then or in the future? Or was he stuck on the earthly treasures right now? Look at Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 22. But in fact, let me just read 18. 
and the quality of lenses is 33 or 22 to 18. It says, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. In 21 he says, And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. 22. Key verse, I keep point. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess, rich man, and distribute it to the poor. And look what he tells him when he distributes to the poor, what's going to happen next? Look what he says here. See if we see a connection to what we just looked at. He says, and you shall have treasure, where? In heaven. And come and follow me. So he's saying, rich man, you give all your stuff in your own earth away, and guess what? You're going to have treasure in heaven. But look what the rich man, look how he responds here. He says, and Jesus looked at him and said, I'm sorry, 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What happened to him? He couldn't appraise the heavenly treasures. He could appraise the treasure right in front of him, which was Jesus Christ. He was so taken by the earthly material pleasures of this world that he had no gauge, no understanding for the heavenly treasures. He had no understanding of the treasure right before him. He was so focused on the earthly things, the earthly goods, that he could not see beyond. He could not see beyond where God is. And that is the situation that we have to guard against ourselves, my brothers and sisters. <coughs> because we as a church, we we don't know how to appraise heavenly rewards. And so we get so caught up on the things of this earth. And that is why we often don't give. Why? Because we're consumed with the things of this earth. That's why how we spend our time is not in towards God and service and mission. Why? Because we're consumed with the things of this earth. But if we become consumed with the heavenly treasures, then guess what? Maybe we'll give more. Maybe we'll serve more. Why? Because we're not concerned with the earthly treasures, but our mind is focused on the things above. The heavenly treasures. So you can tell what a person values by how they spend their time. If a person's really into their car, guess what? They're going to be washing their car all the time. It doesn't matter which day of the week is. They're going to be cleaning. They're going to be working on it. Why? Because that is their treasure. That is where their mind is. Or you can go with people who are really just totally into fitness, really into their bodies. They're going to be at the gym seven days a week just working out. And you ask them, are you going to go to church? I don't have time for church. But yet you have time to work out. We see where their treasure is. Our treasure can't be in the earthly things. Our, our treasure can't be in the things right now. Our, our treasure has to be in the heavenly reward that comes from the Father that comes from Christ. Amen. So I must ask you, if you examine your life, would it be obvious that you value the treasures of heaven, the spiritual reward, or would it show that you are really attached to the things of this earth? If we look at your individual lives, what would it show? Would it show that you are appraising the heavenly treasures, the heavenly reward that Christ said will come to those who live a righteous and pious and godly life? Or would your life show that you are totally attached to the things of this world? Now, I want you to notice that in our main text, in Matthew chapter 6, and here with the rich young ruler, there's one group who's mentioned in both cases. And that group is 
the poor. We see the poor. We see Jesus bringing out the poor in Matthew chapter 6. And when you give to the poor, and we see that the rich young ruler is encouraged to sell all of his goods and to give those goods to the poor. I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus didn't say, go sell all your goods and give to the church. He said, go sell all your goods and you go and give to the poor. He said, you go and give to the poor. See, throughout the scriptures, and that's why I put up that main text today, Proverbs 19, 17, throughout the scripture, God seems to have this affection for the poor, for the widow, for the immigrant, for those without. And if we are children of God, then guess what? We should have the same affections as well. But the question you may ask is, but why the poor? Why is there such emphasis on the poor in Scripture? Well, I kind of want to lean on Tim Keller on this one. In, in Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, uh, Tim Keller is a pastor, theologian, well-known guy, uh, has a lot of wisdom. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller quotes philosopher Nicholas uh, Walterstorff about the poor. And Wasserstorff says this about the poor. He says, the poor are disproportionately vulnerable to injustice. He says, and they are disproportionately victims of injustice. The poor can't afford the best legal counsel. He says, the poor are more often the victims of robbery and crime. He also points out, even in our modern day, he says that um, law enforcement is quick to respond to the rich and powerful um, more than the poor, our poor neighborhoods. You look at the poor, they have the worst schools, the worst education, so it's not surprising that you see the poor mentioned in Scripture all throughout old and new. And, and, and I want to make this point here, when Jesus says in our main text, so when you give to the poor, verse 2, I don't want us to hyper-spiritualize this. This is not the spiritual poor. This is the literal, physically poor. He's saying when you give to, this is the physically poor. He says when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet as the others. And that's important to note. Because in the American church, there's this false dichotomy of options in the American church. And that is, either when I preach the gospel, I preach a repentance, individual salvation, turn and be reconciled to God, or as I mentioned before, I preach good works, good deeds, social issues, meeting the needs of others. In the American church, it has developed this dichotomy where you have to choose one or the other. It can't be both. Either I'm going to preach the gospel, call people to repent, or I'm going to serve others and meet the needs of others. But the scripture doesn't make that option. The scripture calls for us to do both. And it's not just a spiritual thing, but it's also a horizontal act in caring for our brothers and sisters. And that's very important to know, because we can often get so caught up just only on the spiritual and we forget about the thing where God has called us to do towards one another. That's, that's very evident, matter of fact, in Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Has anybody ever read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail? Anyone? Okay, that's good. I can inform you then. So Martin Luther King, when he was arrested in Clinton Jail, Birmingham, there was a letter that he was responding to. He was responding to a bunch of white Christian pastors and clergymen who was trying to convince Martin Luther King that the civil rights um, issue that he was fighting was not in God was not a gospel issue, but was a social issue. 
So they're basically trying to tell them to give it up. What you're doing is not a gospel issue. The gospel has nothing to do with civil rights. Those are social issues. You need to just give that up and just basically go in and preach the gospel. But as we know from Scripture, civil rights has all to do with the gospel. Because the gospel says that man who was separated from God has now been reconciled to God. And there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. But we are now all one in Christ. So there is no racism. There's no room for any of those things. So the civil rights issue that King was facing were gospel issues. But because of this false dichotomy of just preach the gospel or meet social or economic needs, the clergyman told King to just stop it. Stop it and just focus on the gospel. When what he was doing was gospel. And that's what happens when we develop this false dichotomy of just, I have this one option or I have this other option. But Jesus shows us, no, we must meet the needs of the poor. And he says that when you meet the needs of the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues do. So Jesus tells us to meet the needs of the poor, but he tells us also that our giving, that all giving is not created equal. He says, when you give, do not be like the what? Hypocrites. That comes from the Greek word hypocrites. And hypocrites, guess what that was? That was an actor in a play. That's what that word literally means. Yes, in our culture it means somebody who's kind of like two faces, who's acting one way and really another way. But when you get to its true meaning, how it was used with the Greeks. Uh, Hippocrates was just an actor who would go on the stage and he would wear a mask. And he would wear a mask to conceal his identity. And so he would switch to another character and he would put on another mask. And you call that person as a hypocrite. He's an actor on a play. So Jesus is saying the people who give in the public and sound a, trump a trumpet, they're like actors in a play. They're acting like they're godly and holy, but there's nothing good inside of them. They're acting like they really love and care for the person that they're giving, but it's not at all about them. It's about their own glory. It's about them receiving honor from men. So Jesus says, they are like actors in a play. They're actors in a play, acting like they're holy, acting like they really care, but no, their heart is not there. It's not about God. And if you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I give my possessions to feed the poor but do not have love, I am nothing. So even if I do the act but my heart is not there, if there's no affection of my heart, then my giving is nothing. And so these hypocrites, their giving was nothing. So not only were these hypocrites devoid of love and compassion, but they were seeking the honor of man, not the honor of God. Meaning that they were making themselves the center of their giving. And guess what? God can tell the real from the fake. He can tell a person who's giving out of a pure heart and a person who's giving falsely. We see an example of this in Genesis, Cain and Abel. You remember Cain and Abel, right? You remember how Cain and Abel, the scripture says that they both went to present their offerings to the Lord. Do you remember that? It says that Cain presented the first fruits of the ground. So he came to the Lord, he presented the first fruits of the ground. Then it says that Abel brought the first uh, firstborn of his flock. Now on the outside, you have Cain and Abel, they both look like they're doing godly deeds. One is offering up fruit, one is offering up a, a flock. They look like they're doing things that are holy and righteous from the outside. Just like if you've seen a person um, in Sacramento who was giving help to a homeless person. 
you would know that person giving help was an atheist or a believer. You would have no idea. All you see is a person doing a good act. That's all you see. And that's the same thing here with Cain and Abel. They look like they're doing the same thing. But the scripture tells us that Abel's or Cain's gifts was different. Look at Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews 11.4, I want to show you this. It says by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. How did he offer a better sacrifice? I just read it. How did he offer a better sacrifice? He brought it. Yes. It says through faith. One was done through faith. One was done, I don't know, with religion. I don't know how you want to describe it, but we see that one was done in faith and one was done in not faith. And that's the, that's the one thing that the atheist can't do when they help someone who's poor. They cannot offer help in faith knowing that God is sovereign. See, when the believer gives, the believer gives from the mindset knowing that everything that he has was given to him by God, that nothing is his own, that he is a steward. So when he gives, he is giving what is of God. That is something that an atheist or an unbeliever cannot do. They cannot do those things. And that is what separates a person who is giving in faith versus a person who is just giving. There's an element of faith. There's a humility and understanding that all of my riches, all of my money, everything that I have is given to me from God. So it is not mine in the first place. And if it's not mine in the first place, I can give it to whoever God calls me to give it to because it is His. And that is the separation. That is the difference of a believer giving and an unbeliever. That's the difference from a hypocrite who gives versus a true person. They understand. They are operating in faith. They understand that God is sovereign. They understand that God has given them everything that they have. So when they give, it's God's in the first place. That is the difference. See, the gospel, it frees us in our giving. Because the gospel takes us out of the sinner where we're no longer the one trying to do good deeds to gain God's um, uh, uh, merit or to merit good deeds. The gospel allows us to go and to give to reach the needs of the poor without thinking about ourselves and what is going to come and if we're going to give glory from men. It, the gospel helps us to say, I'm trusting in the works of Jesus, so I'm not trying to earn God's favor by helping the, the person that needs help, but I'm trusting in Christ. But the unbeliever, the atheist, they give for self. It was a, I forgot, it was a, um, I'll try to think of it, it's a show, I can't think of it now, but it, it just, there was a, uh, it was a giving, uh, you know, they had those, those telethons, and there was some telethon where the guy said, he looked at the screen, right, you know, they're trying to raise money, and he looks at the screen, and he says, you guys need to call now and give, so that you can know that you're not a bad person, that you're not a slump, you need to give. And that is what the thing that when you are not a follower of God, we often give to make ourselves known or to convince ourselves that we are not a good person, I'm not a slob. 
And when we do that type of giving, we are making ourselves to be the center of our giving. We are making it to be about us. And that is what God, or that is what Jesus is showing us, that our giving can't be about us. We cannot be the center of our giving, but the giving has to be about the person in need and the God who made them. We cannot make ourselves the center of our, our giving by sounding a trumpet so that attention may come to us so that we may be glorified, but we must, we must give with an understanding that it is God who gets the glory. Not that I'm giving for myself, but I'm doing it to help the one who God has called me to help because God has made him in his image. As we go down in the text, our main text, Jesus, he says, don't sound here when you're giving to the poor. Do not sound a trumpet before you. Because the hypocrites are in the synagogue and in the streets, and that they may be honored. Then he says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Look what he says in verse 3. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, when you read that statement, it seems to contradict what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. It seems to contradict what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Because here he says, do not let your right hand even know what your left hand is doing. You give in secret. But then when we look at his previous verses, in chapter 5, verse 16, look what he says. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, you see what's happening here. Here he's saying, okay, let's do it. I mean, what your left hand and what your right hand is doing, you do it in secret. But when we go back to Matthew 5, he says, uh, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. And also in 1 Peter, Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Amen. Peter is saying, you do your things openly so that they will glorify God. Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew 5, 16, but then we see here in chapter 1 or 6, he said to conceal. So which is it? Is it revealed or is it concealed? Most commentators agree that when Jesus is describing the trumpets, for example, that he's using hyperbole or he's using it over-exaggeration to bring home a point. And so he's not saying, that, like, did they literally blow the trumpet? There's some suggest that they had a culture, there was another culture hundreds of years before where they would literally blow a trumpet and they would ring a bell when a person came to the poor, but it's likely that that was not the case during this time. But, but what Jesus is bringing out is that you're giving, when, when you go from blowing a trumpet, letting everybody know, he's contrasting that to not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What he's trying to get us to see is that our self has to be taken out of the equation. What is the intention of your heart when you do this? Are you thinking about glory to me? Are you thinking about glory to God? He said, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is. That's self. You're not letting yourself, it's not about you. You're taking self out of the equation and you're focusing on the person 
to give glory to God unless you meet those needs. And if people see the glory to God, amen, praise God. But your intention is not that you may receive glory to yourself. You're concealing it from yourself, but it's so that God will get the glory when you give. That's the heart of what he's getting at here. We cannot give pretentiously. We cannot give to, to be cool and look good, but we give out of a true and pure heart that glorifies God. That's the void of our self. That's not what the hypocrites were doing. The hypocrites were making themselves the center of their giving. God or Christ is advocating to void yourself. Make it be about God, not you. That is the intention of our heart. When we give, we are thinking, how can I glorify God? How can I meet the need of this person who's made in the amount of day, the image of God? It is not who's going to think I'm great, but it's God. And Christ says, when you do that, it's for this heavenly reward. So, so we have to understand as we give, it can't be about you, my brothers and sisters. It can't be about you. When you do that, Christ says, you forfeit your rewards in heaven. He says, take it off of you. So they're saying that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing because you're not even thinking about you. You're doing it in secret in the sense of you are out of the equation. You are moved out of the way so that the attention can be focused on the person that you're helping and the God whose image that they are making. That is how we get Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, God. We thank you for the uh, word of showing us how it is to live righteously, what to be aware of, and how to operate in our giving, how to practice our righteousness, Lord God. We thank you that you're so good that you decide to even reward us for things that we should do just for the glory of your namesake, Lord. But you are just good that you pour out, you pour out more and more. God, help my brothers and sisters as they go out this door to live a holy and righteous life. Have you at the center, not themselves, not the glory to their name, but your name, as they help others, as they meet the needs of others, as they carry out this godly and righteous life that you've called them to live. May you be glorified in all things, God. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.